0: Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. What you wear can really reveal a lot. When I go to a baseball game, I tend to put a lot of stock into... Uh, the hats that I find people wearing. Some people, you might be one of them, might hear everything I'm about to say and think that I'm being very judgmental, and maybe you're right. But I like to think that I'm just being very observant. Uh, let's let's imagine, if you can, that, that it's next summer and we're at Target Field. It's a lot warmer than it is today, and we're there for a Twins game, and we're walking around, and we see someone wearing an old, ratty Twins hat. Now, we don't know for certain, but we can probably assume, based off of that, that uh, this person has been a Twins fan for a long time. You, you, you might, would be safe to assume that this person wears this hat, you know, not just when they go to a ball game but wears it most days, if not every single day. If you were to come across someone wearing a hat that is brand new, still has the stickers and the tags on it and no dirt, anything to, fu- to be found anywhere, you can probably assume that, that they just bought that hat o- that day when they got to the stadium. Uh, you can maybe assume that that maybe this is their first time at a Major League Baseball game. This is their first exposure to to baseball or or something like that. If you were to come across someone wearing a hat for the team that, that the Twins are playing that day, you could maybe assume that they're not from Minnesota, this person. Maybe, maybe they're, they're on vacation traveling and wanted to see uh, the team that they root for while they're traveling. Maybe they're originally from that place and they've moved to Minnesota for some reason and they're wanting to see the team that they've that they've uh, rooted for their entire life, something, something like that. If you see someone wearing a hat that, that isn't for any baseball team at all, maybe you can assume that they don't really care about baseball, they just like a good hat. Maybe you can assume, like, that's what I do when I go to a game where I'm not rooting for either team, I wear a different kind of hat because, again, I think about things far more than I need to. But maybe you could assume that this person cares about baseball, they just don't have a, a dog in the fight on that day. Or if you were to come across someone wearing a Chicago Cubs hat, you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that person needs to be prayed for. It's not, it's not their fault, maybe, maybe, that they've gone astray. Maybe someone led them astray. Maybe they made that decision by their own, but whatever the case may be, they need to repent. They need to know the grace of God. You can be confident in that. And my friends that are Cubs fans are going to listen to this and be mad at me, but that's okay. What you wear can reveal a lot. And right now you're probably thinking, or you could be thinking something along the lines of, man, our preacher spends a lot of time thinking about things that don't matter at all, and you've got a point. But my point remains the same. What you wear can reveal a lot. It reveals where your allegiances lie. You're probably not going to wear something representing a team, a brand, something like that, if, if that thing that you're wearing a shirt for stands against everything that you stand for. It, it, what you wear reveals what you consider valuable. If you consider appearance important, that will probably be reflected in how, you, in how you dress. It reveals how important you think whatever the thing is that you are attending is. I don't know of too many things I've attended in my life that were very important that I showed up for in a t-shirt and shorts, even if I wanted to be wearing t-shirt, a t-shirt and shorts while I was there. Uh, what we wear reveals a lot. And, and as we come to the end of our series this week where we have been looking at the blessings in the book of Revelation, we find the last blessing of this book calls us to think about our clothing. Uh, The blessing of this passage is upon those who wash their robes, because washing our robes is the demonstration we have identified ourselves with with Jesus, and we are entering in to dwell in his presence for eternity. This text is a call. Uh, not just a proclamation that we will be blessed if we wash our robes, but a call for anyone that might hear the words of this passage to come to Jesus so that the blessing of this passage might be true of them, that they might wash their robes and come to dwell in the presence of our God forever. As we come to this passage, Christ is calling us. He's calling us to come to him, to be made new by him, and with that call, there is also a promise. A promise that he will sustain us when we come to him. The Christ who calls us is also the Christ who sustains us. To see what we're, to see that in this passage, I want to break this text down into a few chunks, but I, what I want to do first is read the first portion of this passage. These are words of Jesus speaking, and I want to draw four points out of those verses that I think all build off of each other as we go along. So that's where we're headed this morning. Let me read for us verses 12 to 17. Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash the robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root, the offspring of David, and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift, the water of life. The first thing I think we need to notice in these verses is that all things are summed up in Jesus. We see that with the titles he gives himself in these verses. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Jesus covers everything from A to Z. He's the first and the last. Before there was anything else, he was there, and even if everything else is gone, Jesus will remain. He's the beginning and the end. He was there at creation. His life was spoken into existence. He is the end of it all. All things are summed up in Jesus. There is not an inch of the universe not under his authority. And it's worth noting, since we've kind of flown over this book in this series, that all the terms here that Jesus uses have appeared elsewhere in this book. Back in the first chapter, in verse 17, Jesus says, He is the first and the last. He was dead, and He is now resurrected. He comes back to that here to emphasize he has conquered every enemy, even death, for all time. But those other two titles, the Alpha, the Omega, the Beginning, and the End, they are titles that have been applied to God the Father when they've shown up elsewhere in this book. In chapter 1, verse 8, God the Father says he is the Alpha and the Omega. In chapter 21, verse 6, the Father proclaims he is the Alpha and the Omega, the Beginning and the End. And I think that is worth highlighting just to give us a sense for the magnitude and the supremacy of jesus he's not the second string god he is not the intern of god the father jesus is god and that might seem like an overly obvious point to emphasize but we need to reflect on that truth remember John had been one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He had spent every waking moment of roughly three years with this carpenter-turned-rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth. John knew Jesus as well or better than anyone, yet in this book he makes the statement, Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh. Not his buddy, not a lesser God who's easier to approach, more uh, uh, nicer to deal with than God the Father. He is God Himself with authority over all things, King of the universe, conqueror of sin and death for all thing, all time. All things are summed up in Jesus. All things submit to the authority of our King. That same point is, is made again at the tail end of this passage in verse 16. As Jesus says, He is the root and offspring of David. He is the bright and morning star the first piece of that comes from isaiah chapter 11 which was looking forward to a time when someone would come who was descended from the line of david who would restore god's people who would renew all of creation and make it possible for all people to come in and be a part of the people of god and that has come in jesus and he is the bright morning star he is the light that illuminates everything else all meaning all significance comes from jesus and jesus alone He's the one who holds authority over all things. He's the one currently ruling over all things. He's the one who will one day return and redeem all things. He is the one who is our authority. He's the one we look to as our hope. He is not just a nice guy we go to when things are rough so he can make things better. He is not a vending machine there to appease our needs. He is our Lord and our King who we submit to in all Things allowing him to set the terms of our existence instead of trying to figure out how we can twist his arm into giving us what we want all things are summed up in jesus and because all things are summed up in jesus he invites us to come to him jesus has authority over all things and yet he does not rule as a tyrant he is the king of all things because he emptied himself offering himself as a sacrifice for sin on the cross dying the death we deserve so that we might have life with him And because that is who He is, He invites us to come, to come to Him. Because He rules over all things, He makes it possible for us to come into relationship with Him. He promises that He is coming soon, like we talked about last week. And that does not mean we are called to speculate on exactly when that day will come or decide Jesus must be wrong because He doesn't operate on our timeline it is a call to live with hope the life we will one day enjoy in completion is already begun in part and so we live with an expectation of that future reality that will come jesus is coming soon When he comes with him, he brings eternal life for his people. And that is the reward. That is the end goal we look forward to as God's people. He has promised that one day he will make all things new and all things includes you and me. He invites us to come so that we might experience life with our God as we were created to live. These verses are not a threat from a tyrant. They are an invitation from a benevolent king to come and enjoy the blessing of life under his perfect rule. But it's important we don't misunderstand what he's saying in these verses when he speaks of giving to all people according to what they have done. That's not a threat from Jesus that our eternal destiny hinges on whether or not we've been good enough, whether or not we've measured up to some standard that only he knows. We don't have any insight as to how good we have to be. The thing over which everything hinges is how we have responded to Jesus. When we come to Jesus, we wash our robes. And that washing is our entry point into eternal life. This idea of washing robes shows up in Revelation chapter 7. John sees this vision of a great multitude representing all of God's people, people from every nation and tribe and people and language, and John sees that they are wearing white robes, and it is explained to him that these white robes have, had, have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And that might not make very much sense from a perspective of sanitation. John is not recommending that you know to get the really rough stains out, you've got to get a little blood in there to really, really take care of it. That's not what he's saying. It's a statement about our need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Back in Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah uh, laments the sinfulness of God's people and he says all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. The very best humanity can offer to show before god to prove that we are worthy of him worthy of his love his uh, goodness towards us is the equivalent of a pile of dirty rags that just needs to be thrown in the dumpster so as jesus speaks here about a reward that is coming and saying that those who wash their robes will be blessed he is not speaking of something we are called to accomplish on our own he is speaking of how we respond to what he has done remember what you wear reveals a lot In response to what Christ has done, we are called to wash our robes, to be cleansed of our sin by his blood, so that we might be able to stand before our God as righteous, as pure, as clean, as holy. It is not a matter of trying to purify ourselves. It is a matter of being cleansed by the only one who can ever make us truly clean, so that we may have life with our God, as he explains there in verse 14. Those who wash their robes are invited in to have the right to the tree of life. The very same tree that back in Genesis chapter 3, God put an angel with a flaming sword in front of to keep humanity away from it. Because for them to eat from it would give them eternal life in a broken world. And God bars humanity from that tree of life in Genesis 3 because of our sin, and with that bars us from the potential of eternal life. But here, at the end of the story, the way has been opened up for those who have washed their robes In the blood of the Lamb. The gates of the city are thrown open. This new Jerusalem where God's people dwell in God's presence for all eternity because the blood of the Lamb cleanses God's people from our sins so that we might be made new. This is the hope we look forward to as God's people. Washing our robes leads to life with our God forever. And that invitation to life with our God is for all. So far I've, I've kind of skipped over verse 15 because in the midst of all of this positive about eternal life with our God, there's the negative right there that those who do not respond, those who do not come to wash their robes will be cast out. There's no place for the unclean in the new heavens and the new earth. All sin and impurity will be done away with for all time. Uh, he says, Outside of the dogs. Dogs were viewed as the most unclean animal in the ancient world, so I don't think... That if you're a dog person, John is saying here that there's, there's no dogs in heaven or something like that. But this list summarizes all of the impure things that have no place in God's new creation. There's no place for magic arts, humanity trying to use the powers of evil for their own ends. There's no place for sexual immorality, human beings subverting God's good intentions for his creation and using others for their own pleasure at the expense of what is best for the other person. There's no place for murder taking the life of someone created in God's image. There's no place for idolatry, giving anything other than God the place of the ultimate thing in our lives. There is no place for deception and falsehood, either in practicing it ourselves or endorsing its use by others. God is a God of truth, and therefore, we look forward to when all lies will be done away with. And that is what we look forward to as God's people. Because this is the offer that stands, we live as people in the present, informed by the past, informed by what Christ has done, and looking forward to the future when He will return. And that is the call that makes up the last few verses of this book. There in verse 17, God's Spirit and God's people, the Bride, underline the words of Jesus by calling Him to come soon. And that is our prayer even today. We long for the day when the images of this chapter become a reality, when we dwell in the presence of our God forever, and in the meantime, we take the words of Jesus and the words of this book seriously, which John underlines in verses 18 and 19. I'll read for us. John says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll, And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. Because of who Jesus is, we do not tamper with his words. John offers a stern in these two verses that if anyone adds to the words of this book, the book of Revelation, God will add to them all the plagues and judgments described in this book. And he continues, says if anyone takes away the words of this book, God will take away from them the blessings of eternal life. This is not anything to mess around with. This is a call to take the words of this book seriously. And we might read We might read this, sorry, we might read this and think, well, John, that's pretty intense. That's kind of closed-minded, don't you think? Shouldn't you be a little more welcoming? But if this book accurately describes who God is and how we are called to live as his people, we should desire to echo these words. If you have the truth, then it would make sense that it, that it would be our desire to not want to tamper with it in any way. And this is how seriously God's people should take the words with which God has communicated to us. And that is true about this book in particular and about Scripture as a whole. John writes these words about the book of Revelation, but the truth here should carry over into how we read and understand Scripture as a whole, how we listen to the words of Scripture when we read them for ourselves, when we study them ourselves, when we hear them preached and taught. If Jesus is who he claims to be, we should take his words, and we should take understanding his words properly, seriously. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then our goal first and foremost should be to come to him on his own terms, so that we can hear words of life that he has spoken to us. We're not going to improve on the words he has given us. We're not going to come up with something that's better than how Jesus has revealed himself to us. As has already been spelled out in this passage. The reward for those who remain faithful to Jesus, who remain faithful to what he has given us, is eternal life with him in complete perfection. And if that is the end result of following the commands laid out in these verses, then why would we ever want to go anywhere else? If God truly is who he seems to, be, if God truly is who we believe Him to be—that He is the Creator, Sustainer, Ruler of the entire universe—and has communicated to humanity about who He is, about who we are, about what has gone wrong in our world, and what the solution is to what has gone wrong. Why would we ever think we're going to going to make the situation better by tinkering with the words of God? Either by adding to it, thinking we've come up with a new and improved version of the Gospel of God through which He's setting all of creation right, or by taking away, thinking that we know better than God and therefore we need to smooth off some of the rough edges of the message for us. As if we as imperfect humanity have moved beyond the wisdom of the perfect, infinite, loving God of all things. Once when I was a kid, my uh, Grandpa had bailed some square bales on our farm, and I was too little to be of, of much help with moving square bales, but I was big enough that I could hold the steering wheel straight in his truck. And so he put his truck in first gear, put me in the driver's seat, told me just to, just to hold the steering wheel straight, and he would walk alongside and would uh, grab the bales and throw them in the back of the truck. And I can't remember all the details of it, but, but I do remember uh, that it wasn't very long before I started having ideas of how we could improve our operation sort of maybe making some suggestions to my grandpa about how, you know, things can run a little more efficiently around here, I think, if in, my, in, in all that I had observed. And my grandpa kindly, but also firmly, said to me that there would come a day, and, you know, I was older, understood things a little more, and when that day came, then I would be able to give directions and, and, and boss people around a little bit, but until that day came, I just needed to sit in the truck and hold the steering wheel straight and trust that he knew better. And in the same way, these verses from John are a call for us to allow God to do things because he is qualified to do that and we are not. Taking away, adding to the words of God himself are like me as a kid thinking I'm qualified to offer advice to my grandpa only infinitely more. Our God is good and gracious to us. He calls us to to take His Word on its own terms, trusting that He knows best as opposed to opposing our agenda onto His Word. So may we be people who desire God and His Word as it is, not as we like for it to be. And as we do that, may it draw us into deeper and deeper worship of our God. This book ends with a prayer that we should echo at all times, even now. The hope An expectation that permeates the book of Revelation is the same hope and expectation that should permeate our lives. The same hope available to God's people, as John wrote, is available to us today. The same hope that was more powerful than persecution, suffering, and even death in the first century is still powerful than anything and everything that might come our way today. For those of us who are weary, may we be reminded of the sustaining power of God available through the presence of the Spirit with us. For those of us struggling under the weight of sin, may we be reminded we have been invited to come and wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb so that we might be cleansed and healed for all time. For those of us grieving, may we be reminded of the hope we have because of the resurrection of Jesus. And as God's people, wherever we might be, whatever we might be going through, may we draw near to our God who has drawn near to us in Jesus, so that we might experience life with him now and for all eternity. No matter where we might be this morning, may we echo the prayer that ends this book as we go out as people grounded in the hope and the expectation of the return of Jesus. So as a small expression of that, I'm going to conclude things this morning and conclude this series with a responsive reading of the last two verses of this book. The text will be on the screen. I'll read if you will read with me. Uh, the words that are in bold, Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21. John says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.